Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'd like to introduce uh, today's moderator, who in turn will introduce the panelists. Uh, Jeffrey Callison was born in Scotland. He moved to California in 1989. He started his radio career soon after at NPR affiliate KUSP-FM in Santa Cruz, then joined Capital Public Radio here in Sacramento in 1996. He served as news director for several years before being named Insight's first host in 2004. Jeffrey? Thank you, Dave. As Dave said, I'll introduce first of all the panel and uh, on the far side, on my left, is Alexis Hafley, who's the founder and CEO of the nonprofit group Empower African Children. She's also producer of Spirit of Uganda, which is a program of Empower African Children. In the middle is uh, Dr. Moradewun Adejunmobi, who's professor and director of African American and African Studies at UC Davis. And right next to me is Dr. Jean Wiedemann, who's Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Section of Infectious Diseases, also at UC Davis. Welcome them all, please. Thank you. The reason why we're sitting here is because of the spirit of Uganda coming to, to UC Davis. Alexis, first of all, tell us who all these young people are, these singers, these dancers in Spirit of Uganda. Yeah. Spirit of Uganda is comprised, uh, as Dave said, uh, with 22 children, 11 boys, 11 girls, ranging in age from 8 to 20. And most of them uh, originally came from an orphanage. Now they're community-based. They're part of our program under our support system. And the um, majority of the group have lost one or both parents to AIDS. Uh, that's the spirit of Uganda is comprised of. Is it... Was it, is it a deliberate choice to, to, um, to opt for young people who are orphaned uh, um, for, because of AIDS and HIV? Or is that just a coincidence? No, no, no. Uh, our Empower African Children, our outreach is to orphans and vulnerable children. I think we do try to look at situations that are the most critical, where we would make the largest impact. Children who would never have the opportunity to receive a secondary education, uh, who have lost one or both parents to AIDS or to rebels in the north. Yeah. Dr. Moradewan Adijunmobi, um, how familiar are you with, with Uganda? Um, my area of expertise is not uh, Uganda in particular, though I have um, studied uh, uh, trends uh, relating to HIV-AIDS um, across Africa, including Uganda, but I focus mainly on Southern Africa in terms of HIV/AIDS. Okay, uh, Uganda is, is um, uh, occupies an important part role in the in the story of HIV and AIDS because Uganda was, has been heavily affected by it. Give give us an idea of the scale of HIV/AIDS in Uganda. Well, I I, I think what's um, Uganda is important because it was the first um, country which really experienced um, an epidemic. You know, HIV-AIDS was present in a number of places, but was the first place where people became aware of an epidemic of something significant, something uh, larger, and uh, the first place which experienced a significant number um, of deaths. Um, Uganda is also important today because it's the first country, the first African country to experience um, a significant decline in uh, rates of infection um, uh, for HIV-AIDS. Um, at this point in time, and, well... Indeed, for a couple of years now, uh, the, the center of gravity of HIV-AIDS in Africa has um, shifted from Uganda and, um, and East Africa um, and Central Africa, where 
first emerged to um, southern Africa. So um, the largest number of people who are HIV positive, the countries which are most heavily affected now, are now in southern Africa and not um, in East Africa. But people keep looking up to Uganda and trends in Uganda because they're trying to understand how Uganda was was able to accomplish what it has accomplished thus far. Dr. Jean Wiedemann, your HIV AIDS is one of your specialties, albeit not in, in Africa. But could you give us a, a quick summary of, of how we understand that HIV AIDS came about? Oh, um, well, that's actually quite complex. I understand. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is uh, thought that it started as a, a simian uh, immunodeficiency virus, it's an SIV, and then uh, through contact, uh, most likely in Africa with humans, uh, became transformed, if you will, into a, a human uh, immunodeficiency virus. Do we have any idea why Uganda uh, was such an important place in the, in the, in the spread of, of AIDS, HIV and AIDS? Uh, well, again, I don't have expertise in African AIDS, uh, but uh, perhaps uh, another professor could answer that. Uh, I think that, as, as been, has been mentioned just, just now, is that um, it had a, a very early high prevalence rate of HIV. And uh, then in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a significant, they started to see a significant drop, um, which is very interesting and, and obviously multifactorial. Yeah. Mara Dewan, can you give us any, shed any light on, on why Uganda was, was so important in the early development and spread of AIDS? I, I think it's difficult to say why Uganda in particular, but we do know that there are a number of factors which uh, facilitate the spread of AIDS today, such as social upheaval, war, and there was a, a period uh, when Uganda went through um, a lot of trouble in terms of governance, um, um, social upheaval, violence, uh, which continues in the north of Uganda um, today, and all of those factors no doubt um, contributed. We, we know that there are other things which also come into play because countries um, like Botswana, which has never experienced war, has a much higher rate of HIV AIDS now than Uganda did. But certainly in terms of when it's first introduced, it seems that if there's social upheaval, if there's war, if there's violence, that um, um, is a major factor in, uh, because you know, kinship structures break down, family structures break down, there's a lot of sexual violence if there's social upheaval, all of that um, AIDS and abets the spread of um, a disease like AIDS. Alexis, tell us um, what you found in, in Uganda when you first went there. When was that and why did you go there and what did you see? I initially went in 1993 and lived there the first time for about a year and a half um, and started working with an orphanage there called the Daughters of Charity. I initially went to Uganda uh, by invitation of the First Lady of Uganda to help with different orphan-related projects and heard, heard about a nun who really wasn't your normal nun. She was more like a Whoopi Goldberg and taught children how to sing and dance. And it was basically the dance troupe that was uh, in the orphanage was a group of children she'd taught to sing and dance, and that was a source of income, paid school fees, maybe bought the next meal. So uh, there were weeks that I went to a funeral every day. And when someone um, dies in Uganda, what normally happens in the grieving process is that they'll announce it on the radio, and which allows uh, individuals to come from far and near, and they'll come and sit at the home of the person who's died and grieve with them. And so one of the jobs that I had was to take the children who would sing to these homes where there were deaths, and they would sing all night for those that were grieving. And um, so day after day, sometimes I saw so many 
terrible things that I wondered, I, before I went to Uganda, I wondered if community really existed and if intimacy really existed, because I think oftentimes we talk about it, but what does that really mean? And I found really in the midst of poverty and suffering and being poor that there really was community and people do come together to comfort and grieve and to go on. I want to pick up on something you said by invitation of the First Lady of Uganda. How did that come about? Um, we don't get invitations like this every yeah. day. Uh, I actually, I used to work in banking for about 10 years and thought that there must be more to this journey. And so I quit my job in banking. I moved to Washington, D.C. and had the opportunity to meet a congressman there by the name of Tony Hall. And he and his wife were very involved in third world countries. They had taken their children to Uganda one summer to for about six weeks to work in the orphanages. She had been very instrumental in taking a group of Senate and congressional wives to Uganda to have a better understanding of the AIDS and orphan crisis. So after I lived in D.C. for about a year, uh, they were friends with President Museveni and his wife, and uh, they asked if I had an interest in going to Uganda. And really, my vision was never Africa, nor did I think I would go there one day. But I heard about and learned about Uganda and the AIDS and orphan crisis over the year. I was in Washington, D.C., and when I quit my job in banking, I told God I would go anywhere, and he took me there. <laughs> How did you see AIDS, HIV and AIDS change Uganda and the people of Uganda in, in all the time that you've been there? Uh, in some ways, uh, I think people have grown to appreciate life more, and certainly they've their awareness has been raised, and uh, they believe in the ABC, abstinence, be faithful, and condoms. So I've seen that really be implemented. Uh, but I've also seen, at the same time, an apathy uh, about five years A growing ago. apathy? I think, I think it's something that they fight with. It's uh, that, you know, you see so many deaths from AIDS and other things. I mean, people die of other things. It's not just AIDS. Uh, but I remember one time I met with a group of our employees that were working with us, and at that point, the average, um, well, I think the average age was 37 years old uh, that someone would live. And so one of our main social workers, who was just a star employee, uh, we were trying to start a Social Security program. And so that meant a part of their salary would go into Social Security and so they didn't have confidence in the, the government that they felt like that there was corruption and that really they would never really see that Social Security. So here was this young man that was about 35 years old, and he said, well, you know what, that my life expect the life expectancy here in Uganda is about 37, so you know I really will never see that Social Security. So I, they, we had real resistance in trying to <clears throat> apply that to our employees, and so... You know, it's, it's a mindset, a complacency that begins to chip away at, at a population. Sure. That's not held intact. Maura Dewan, uh, stepping back from Uganda <laughs> and looking at Africa, how has, how has HIV and AIDS changed Africa, would you say? Hmm. It's been such a, a big part of lives for a lot of people in several, quite a few countries in the last mm -hmm. couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I, I certainly don't want to um, generalize. I think it's changed Africa in different ways depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. There are um, some countries um, that are at the beginning of the epidemic, even though we've been speaking about HIV-AIDS for many years. 
there are countries where people are just beginning to die. So the kind of changes that you have there, if any, are different from countries like Uganda, where people began to die um, 15, 20 years ago, and where people have um, developed all kinds of coping mechanisms um, for uh, for dealing, for responding with uh, uh, the disease, and there are countries which are kind of like halfway in between. And, and the reactions differ depending on where you are. I, I think in countries where people are just beginning to, to die... Um, Can you give examples of those countries? Well, when I, certainly when I lived in Southern Africa in the mid-1990s, people were just beginning to die there, though Southern Africa has now moved forward. I think in West Africa today, people are just beginning to die. So... Um, there is a way that people react. And one of the things that happens in countries where people are just beginning to die, if I go back to my, exam, my experience in Southern Africa, and specifically in Botswana in the mid-1990s, um, naturally there's a fear of your own mortality. And you avoid anything that's going to force you to confront the fact that you might be dying. So um, at that point in time in the mid-1990s, if you went to the hospital for anything in Botswana, even if it was a toe ache, they would test you for HIV. So people didn't go to the hospital. Mm. So it wasn't a situation where, you know, like, I can't go to the hospital, I can't pay. There were free government hospitals. So you didn't go because you didn't want to confront your mortality. The fact that you, you know, someone's going to give you the news and say, you you know, you have 10 years to live. And what was important at that point was that um, antiretrovirals were generally not available Mm. at that point in time. So... If, if you were told that you were HIV positive, it was a death sentence. Yeah. You were going to die. And it's very difficult for a lot of people to, to deal with that. Why is, it this, why is it people have only started dying relatively recently in some countries? Is it because the disease spread more slowly or because there were different treatments available in different countries? No, um, there are many. Um, as I mentioned um, earlier um, in response to a question that you said, there are many different factors which um, aid and abet the, um, the spread of um, HIV AIDS. So um, there are countries where you do have um, some violence and, you know, um, warfare going on. There are countries where you don't have that going on. There are very different marriage patterns. There are countries where um, marriage, and what is important here is not um, uh, necessarily the legal document, but where you have long-term sexual relationships and there are countries where you don't have long-term sexual relationships where marriage as an institution is very weak, which is typical of most of the countries in southern Africa, that for historic reasons, um, there is a relatively high turnover of sexual relationships. Uh, Very few people are married. Um, And in that situation, HIV-AIDS spreads even faster if we presume that most sexual... I mean, most adults are sexually active. Yes. Jean, let's talk a little bit about the the quote-unquote death sentence. Um, A few decades back, it... it, Mm. Is it fair to say that it pretty much was a death sentence when, if you were HIV positive? Well, m- most of my experience, of course, is in um, uh, areas where we, we do have antiretroviral therapy available. And uh, all of the children that I have taken care of, I would have to say that early in the 1990s, uh, it was a death sentence because then we had single drug therapy only. And you would get about a year, maybe two at most, of a reprieve uh, from symptoms. In fact, it was interesting because the mindset was that you only had one drug, maybe two at that time to use. They only worked about a year, maybe two. And after that, you had nothing 
nothing else to offer. So you waited till the, ch the children became really quite ill, and then you offered the medication. And now things are reversing quite a bit, and in the United States it's certainly not a death sentence. In fact, we talk to our children now, and it's like talking to a child who's been diagnosed with uh, diabetes um, and has to take insulin injections. So it's chronic but manageable. It's a chronic but manageable, yes, disease process. Uh, having said that, that's probably a little sugar coating because we don't know in children exactly what's going to happen long term. Now we're dealing with drug side effects. And there are a lot of significant drug side effects, uh, a lot of high fats in the blood, high, you know, hyperlipidemia, leading to potentially really early heart disease, things like that that we're dealing with. Can, so. can you give us some idea of what it costs to be treated in, in California? <laughs> well, um, I would if I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, um, being an academic physician, I don't deal with a lot of the cost issues. Uh, having said that, we are very lucky. We're very fortunate in California because all children are offered uh, medical care, even if they're unable to be insured uh, through their parents. Uh, we have Medi-Cal, and then we also have the Children's Services, uh, California Children's Services, or CCS. Right. So we have, uh, we have the ability to give all children... Uh, medications. Mara Dewan, what about the cost of, of treating HIV and AIDS in Africa? Um, many countries, uh, I would imagine, are, are having problems or find it difficult to be able to pay for the treatment on the scale that is required, given that it's presumably quite expensive treatment. How, how does that work? It is extremely um, expensive. Um, and so when I was in Southern Africa in the mid-1990s, um, I knew several people who were HIV positive, and uh, most of them died. I knew of only one person at that point that I knew, uh, and most of the people I knew were educated in middle class who was on ARVs um, at that point in time. Um, the situation has changed over the years. There's been a lot of um, um, advocacy and activism working with multinational drug companies, working with um, agencies um, um, around the world who want to step in and, and help. And so in many countries, if ARVs are available... Um, people don't pay out of pocket. I mean, there's no way they could possibly do that, the, the average person. So it's usually some kind of combination of um, maybe the government contributes something. Um, there are non-governmental agencies um, that are contributing a lot. There are multinationals that agree to reduce prices to some extent. So it's, it's a collaboration between many different uh, groups that come together. Um, but then in terms of managing that, you know, their pros and cons. If you make it completely free, is it good? Do people understand what's involved in that? Do they take it seriously? Because um, you, you think you give medication and it's going to solve the problem, but mm -hmm. apparently it's a little bit more complex than that. Mm -hmm. Just giving the medication doesn't always solve the problem. Because if, it, if you're saying if, if it's too easily and freely available, people might use it uh, as a way to fix something that could have been prevented in the first place. Um, that's one possibility, but it's more that, you know, you start the medication, you, you may not, you know, because it is um, so available to you in a certain way, you, you may not take um, seriously the, the magnitude, you know, because if it's as available as an um, over-the-counter medication, it can't be that serious. Like, what's wrong with me, you know? And I can skip it once or twice, you know, a couple of times. And once I get better, which many of us do with um, um, antibiotics, we have to keep reminding people, once I start to feel better, why should I continue? You know, I'll just stop. Yeah. Yeah.
Could I? Go could ahead. I, yeah, could I address? Yeah, I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. That is one of our absolute biggest problems is adherence to medication. Um, you start the, the children or teenagers uh, on the medications, and for various and sundry reasons, usually social, um, uh, not wanting to take them because they want to fit in, or sometimes side effects because the drugs will make you feel, feel ill. Um, because these, we, the drugs are completely available for our patients, uh, and they'll make all kinds of interesting decisions why they shouldn't take them or they'll miss the, the, the medications. And there's been a lot of scientific evidence to show that if you take less than 90% of the uh, medications uh, for HIV, the virus will mutate. And uh, we are dealing with some extremely uh, mutated and difficult viruses at this point in these children, and we have several who we have nothing else to offer. And a lot of that is because of uh, poor social choices related to freely available medications, but just, you know, for whatever reasons, did not want to take them. Alexis, what are you seeing in Uganda? Is there a, is there a, a reasonable correlation between the, the, the treatments and drugs that are needed and the, the demand for them, the need for them? Yeah. I would say that not everyone has access to ARVs. Mm -hmm. um, I know that uh, there used to be some children that was that were under our care, and they were on a free list at the hospital um, under a program that Pfizer had going with a collaboration there with McCary University. And um, they would get a, they would arrive at the clinic at around 5 in the morning and wait until probably 2 o'clock to be seen. And, um, but they were on a special list. And so adults... Uh, some of the children that were traveling with Spirit of Uganda, some of their parents are HIV positive, and some are on ARVs and some are not. Jean, what does that mean to have HIV or AIDS and not be getting ARVs, antiretrovirals? Well, I mean, it's back to the old death sentence, essentially, uh, because, you you know, there are very few individuals, there are some, but very few that can, um, I guess the best way to say it is handle the virus. Um, and and there, are, there are some individuals who have uh, mutations in probably entry proteins or whatever on their cells, and... Um, Miraculously, they maintain low viral loads and they don't become very ill, although eventually, uh, over time, they will, but it's a very delayed process. That is really the tip of the iceberg. Most people um, have typically replicating virus. It divides and it destroys cells, and over time, without antiretrovirals, you, you, there's no possibility that you'll survive. Since HIV and AIDS appeared, there's been a lot of mythology around it in all circles in every country. But I've always been surprised at some of the things I've read said by some people in leadership circles um, who, who seem to have no idea about what HIV is, how it's spread, and so on. And I know that's been a problem in, in South Africa. Uh, Moradewun, um, is the, has that been an issue in Uganda? I think, um, well, certainly the, um, uh, President Museveni in Uganda um, took a... Um, uh, a bold um, position in terms of speaking about HIV/AIDS and protection and things like you know I, I, he, he you might um, disagree with him on many things but probably not on that one he he certainly took a very bold position meaning um, what uh, pardon meaning what, what meaning what? I mean he would speak about HIV/AIDS publicly he he would tell people that they needed to protect themselves um, that you know th this was something that could you know destroy them that could kill them so. Um, 
He did that, and uh, certainly there are many other um, uh, leaders elsewhere who didn't do that. Um, but I, you know, I, I do want to clarify. And of course, the best known example is going to be um, Tabo Mbeki of South Africa, who didn't, you know, he didn't not speak about it, but he gave, you know, a, a very modelled kind of message about it. The president of South Africa. Um, but but I, I do want to, to clarify, you know, the mythology that um, develops, and there are, there are a million and one myths about um, HIV/AIDS um, around the world. Um, but think about it. You're 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 in a situation where um, either you're affected and you know you're going to die or you have to tell thousands of people, millions, in case of South Africa, that they're going to die, mm-hmm. and you've got nothing to offer. Th- that, you know, that can lead, I don't know, to depression, to suicide, to... If you don't have something else, in those cases, I, I think people basically only survive through mythology. The, the only reason why they don't go and kill themselves and jump into a well right then is... They, they, they tell, you know, they um, pump themselves up with a myth, whatever that myth is, which says this is the reason why I'm going to survive. I, I, can, I can easily understand that among regular people who, who, who've got nowhere to turn. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to well-educated people in positions of power who don't have HIV AIDS themselves, that, that doesn't really explain it. I mean, is it, is it willful ignorance in some cases? I don't think it's willful um, 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 ignorance um, because they, you know, um, they educate, they understand the biology. And one, I started thinking about this when I was um, in, in Botswana. Um, and just to share a little bit about Botswana for the um, audience, um, until um, 2005 probably, uh, the percentage of people with HIV positive in Botswana, of the population that was HIV positive, was the highest of any country in the world. Um, about 40% of the, uh, of the population aged between 15 and 45 years old were HIV positive. <laughs> and um, when I uh, lived in Botswana, I was working in the university. I worked at the university for four years. So I was mostly in contact with educated people. And I started thinking about this because of the responses that I saw among my colleagues, my peers, and my students who were the best educated in the country. The rate of HIV um, infection among our students at the University of Botswana in the mid-1990s was 50%. One in two were HIV positive. And on days when, um, on, on World AIDS Day, December 1, the university actually had a rule that every professor should go into the classroom and not teach and talk about HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some professors did, some didn't. I did. I would go into class and I would say, you know the drill, today we're not going to teach, today we're going to talk about HIV AIDS. Um, and I'd say, what are we going to do to, to stop this terrible thing which is going to kill, um, you know, it's going to destroy the country of Botswana? And my students would put their hands up and say, we're going to educate people. They should protect themselves. They should wear condoms. They, you know, they go the whole thing. I, I, after they'd given me all of these answers, I, I would pause for a moment and say, okay, so what are you going to do for yourself? And there'd be silence because nobody was protecting themselves. Mm. It, it, it wasn't... So, so human behavior is... When people are dealing with something that's truly frightening, they do the craziest things. Mm. And it's not ignorance. They're just so frightened out of their minds. Basically, they're not thinking straight anymore. Alexis, could you tell us um, how people in Uganda, both regular folks and, and at the leadership level, how they... Um, how they regard HIV, AIDS, and how they talk about it, and if there's any common mythology about it? Yeah. I would say that, let me just say that Uganda's been the leading role model 
for all the African nations and how they've come forward, Museveni coming forward and saying that they have a problem with AIDS. Some deny it, whether you're a leader, a minister, a professor, doctor, that they have AIDS. There's still a strong stigma that goes with it, whether you're rich or poor. And uh, there are very few that come out and say, you know, I'm HIV positive and how they're, you know, taking steps to help other people, you know, be faithful, wear condoms, abstinence. Um, you know, Uganda says that 80% of their success has been through abstinence, mm-hmm. and um, which has, you know, been doubted by a lot of countries and mm-hmm. under, fallen under a lot of criticism, but wow, they've done an amazing job of educating their people, even in a population that doesn't have access to electricity in the rural, rural areas. So Museveni sent teams of music, dance, and drama, like the spirit of Uganda, out into the communities to communicate a message, which is an ancient culture in African history of how something is communicated. Was there concern in Uganda that, um, that some important things were at risk of being lost because of HIV-AIDS? Oh, sure. I remember the de- director of the AIDS Commission one time said, you know, we have a population that is working with half a mind. You know, how the employees are, you know, certainly how the money that they make when they work, can they work? Uh, I think that was part of why the UN, United Nations, said that an orphan in Africa is a child who's lost one or both parents to AIDS because of the AIDS pandemic. I think in America we tend to think that a, a child is an orphan if we've lost both parents, but because of the impact of AIDS, that one a family may have lost one parent and the other one is HIV positive, may not be able to work, provide socially, economically, physically for their child, and so that really qualifies a young person as an orphan. Jean, could you give us an idea of the, the progress that's being made in towards treating and, and perhaps even one day curing mm. HIV and AIDS? <clears throat> yeah, well, we, we certainly have um, a lot of antiretroviral therapy, and we have new types of antiretroviral therapy. Um, we have the backbone three drug uh, categories and three new drugs, and some have just been FDA approved. So there's a lot of um, pharmaceutical advancement and looking at ways of um, treating this uh, certainly, there has been uh, some encouragement in the fact that some of the newer drugs block entry of the virus into cells. And with um, the ability to predict when somebody's going to be infected, which we have in children because we know they acquire from their mother at the time of birth almost always, um, then uh, with aggressive use of medications early on, there have been thoughts of curing, uh, but it hasn't been achieved yet. And um, there have been some. Uh, you know, some hypotheses that we would be able to under certain drug combinations and, again, knowing the fact that this uh, infant, when he's born, if we can diagnose him rapidly and start drug therapy immediately before there's a large burden of virus on board, uh, we might be able to cure. But um, that hasn't been achieved yet. But certainly, and and I I must say, too, that unfortunately vaccine has been completely, unfortunately, unrewarding. Uh, So... um, Right now, it's still pie in the sky that we're going to cure. Uh, Hopefully, there will be some breakthrough with vaccination eventually. Uh, But right now, um, our mainstay of therapy is, as we've said before, is maintaining it as a chronic disease process with uh, lifelong antiretroviral therapy. 
How do you explain to children that they have something like this? Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, an ongoing process, and uh, we were discussing that before the program. Um, disclosing to the child that they have this infection is, is uh, done at, uh, as we like to say, developmentally appropriate stages. Children are thought to have the ability to reason around age seven or eight, uh, and certainly we we encourage the family to certainly discuss it by that age. Uh, but many times the children will ask questions before then about their parents because the mothers are infected. We rarely have teenagers presenting with uh, acquired HIV infection through drug uh, exposure, although that clearly happens. Uh, most of the children we care for have acquired their infection from their mothers. Uh, so um, these are young children who are asking their mothers why they're taking medications uh, or asking them why they go to the doctor all the time. So at um, development, with using developmentally appropriate language, we encourage the, the family to just start discussing uh, with the child. Uh, the children oftentimes don't want to hear everything. They can't process everything. Uh, so it's simply answering the questions that they ask at that time and then disclosing more and more as time goes by and um, helping them understand. Maura Damon, um, we're talking about a whole continent here, unfortunately, but uh, what can we do? Um, mm. how, how do you think it's handled with children in Africa, this kind of situation? Because you have a child who is in no control over their, their, no direct control over the health, what they're doing in their lives, their medication, and so on. So it's one thing for an adult to be in denial about something they have, but you know, when it's a child, it's a different matter. Is that a problem? I think it's a problem everywhere um, trying to, you know, communicate with children about something that's so serious. Um, the unfortunate fact is, though, that many children who are HIV positive die very young before they get in Africa, before they get to the point where, you, you know, you, they start to ask questions about, you know, what's wrong with them and why they are... Um, why they're suffering from this or that. But if they did happen to survive and they did have um, access to ARVs, it, it, I imagine, and maybe you can say more, but I imagine it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, I mean, there are a lot of diseases around, but um, to know that you have this disease that could almost definitely kill you very quickly, that's, that's a heavy burden for a child to carry, assuming the child survived. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, parents abandon the children if they know that the child is HIV positive because they're so overwhelmed by the thought of it. Yeah, that's true. There's a big stigma that goes with it. And I know that um, when I used to be with the organization Children of Uganda and uh, there were children that were HIV positive, there was always a question on whether we would tell them that they were HIV positive because what people just identified with was immediate death. But we had a gentleman that uh, actually he worked at the World Bank and he had had a, he was HIV for about 20 years and had been on ARVs. So he came to the orphanage one day and he said, and he looked like a picture of health. He said, do you think that I am HIV positive? Do you think that I have AIDS? And all the children said, no, no, no. And he said, but I've been HIV positive for 20 years. So that day sparked a different way of thinking for those children. And, um, then also, then the children in the home, I mean, it gave them courage. You know, once he started talking about it and symptoms, and yet there's some, there was a, you know, some, a level of solution that they could have medicines. And so really then what that uh, sparked was the other 10 children, and then they 
came out and said, oh, well, I'm HIV positive, and they began to understand where they were, but yet he was an example and encouragement for them that what was so frightening diminished somewhat. Do you explicitly deal with HIV AIDS in any way in the work of Spirit of Uganda, which is a performing arts troupe? We do travel with children that are HIV positive, and um, that's for a reason if they were to fall sick in some way, and plus what, what they perform in our tours are, are need someone with really strong health. And uh, so, no, we don't. And then I think also American audiences... Uh, sometimes there's a lack of awareness of what that means when someone is HIV positive and just... How do you mean? And that uh, one time we had a really funny, funny situation, and actually it was several years ago on a tour, where children refused to shake the hands of the performers because they thought, since they were from Africa, that they were HIV positive. And it made a very awkward situation, but that's just part of raising awareness and education in all audiences, regardless of where you are in the mm-hmm. world. And uh, but that was. Did quite people a tell lot. you that that was what they were worried about? Oh, they said it. Mm-hmm. The children said it as they met as they met the different individuals with Spirit of Uganda. Wow. And, and yeah, that was pretty tough. But that was a learning curve. It was a learning curve for everyone. And I guess we're always on that curve. We never get off of it. Goodness. But we get asked that question every city that we travel to on tour: Are these children traveling HIV positive? It always comes from the audience. Another not. Yet they've been impacted by the HIV virus. What do they see? What do the kids in, in Spirit of Uganda see about HIV AIDS? Not when they're in public situations, but just among themselves, with you or with others. Mm-hmm. Well, they see tragedy, and they see uh, when they see someone that has good health, you know, that, then they think, well, it's close, but it's not so close. Like one of our performers has a sister that's HIV positive, and she's 14 and really struggles. And even though she's on ARVs, and as Jean was saying, there are three levels of drugs, and if you're on the third or second level, and there's only one more drug for you to try to see if that works, it can be a scary place to live. Or if you have a parent that appears very healthy, about 60% of the individuals in, in Uganda die of actually tuberculosis. They, don't, they may be HIV positive, but that's not actually what kills them. Mm-hmm. They contract tuberculosis, and that's what actually kills them. Jean, could you develop that a little bit about mm-hmm. how people actually die if they do? And what are the most common ways to die, at least in this country? Right. Uh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it is oftentimes that what's called an opportunistic infection uh, or an infection that takes advantage of the patient's um, immune system that is depleted. Uh, so uh, even in, in the United States, we still see um, individuals die. That's primarily what we see them die from. We see them die from not so much tuberculosis, although that is very common in Africa. Um, we see other opportunistic infections, um, infections of the brain, uh, infections of the uh, lymph nodes and, and lungs, and sometimes um, uh, you know, and, and sometimes just typical bacterial infections that other children will get. But in this child who has an immune system that's not functioning normally, it will, it will kill them. So we give it this name, AIDS, but it can actually pretty much attack any part of the body. Yes. Or it can lead to an attack on any uh, part of the body. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Alexis, give us an idea about the lives these kids have back home. What is, what is day-to-day life like for the kids of Spirit of Uganda? 
The Children in Spirit of Uganda, uh, they're under our support program of Empower African Children. Uh, we send them all to boarding schools, depending on their level of academic strength. They each have individual sponsors that sponsor their education through our organization. On holidays, they return to a training center, or we send them back out into the community to their guardians or a relative so they know what it's like to live in the community. Uh, if we're training for a tour, like we have been the last six months, uh, on holidays or weekends, they'll come back to our training center. It's a home. We have a home administrator, a social worker. It's a very caring environment, um, very healthy food, and that's where they train from. How do you choose who's going to be in it? Well, it's, uh, who really, it's really children that enjoy what they're doing. They love dance. They get along well with their uh, fellow tour members, those that are uh, rehearsing to be on tour. Uh, and you have to really enjoy and believe in what you're doing. I think the wonderful thing about Spirit of Uganda is that what I've seen over the last 14 years in working in Africa is that the arts and education, how it transforms a young person's life. I see that the children in Spirit of Uganda, it inspires them, it creates a hope that wasn't there. They are part of their solution, and they are part of the solution in making a difference not only in their lives but other children's lives. And uh, within Power African Children, what we believe in is that if you invest in a young person's life, that you can create a world of possibility, mm -hmm. that anything is possible. And I think they believe that. And being on stage and what you'll see in the performance of Spirit of Uganda is that, wow, you know, I'm free. I can do something different. I can make a difference. Mara Dewan, um, as someone who was born and raised in Africa, what, what, what first comes to your mind when you hear the name Uganda? I'm trying to remember <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard. Um, I, I think there's so many different Ugandas. Oh, yeah? um, if, you, if you're old enough to remember all the different U Ugandas, you know. Meaning what? Pardon? Meaning what? Meaning there, there are many different things which have been associated with Uganda. My, my, I think for my first kind of like thinking about Uganda was in high school. I had um, a class. I, had, um, I was, attended a school where there were, um, there were students from many different countries in Africa and in the world. And so there were one or two Ugandans. So I, I just knew Uganda as kind of like the country of a friend. Mm. That was my first, um, uh, that was my first uh, memory. But then later on, of course, Idi Amin came on the scene. Um, and he was bigger than life, and he was all over the news. So then, you know, you start to think of um, Uganda with Idi Amin and with all the conflict that happened around that time. And uh, uh, shortly after he was removed from the political scene, you started to hear about the strange disease. Um, and, and, you know, um, and, and so that, th th there's been that... All of, all of this um, kind of information that's followed Uganda. Uh, the more positive um, recent memories of Uganda, that I, kind of connections with Uganda that I can think of, when I was um, in, um, in, 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 in Botswana um, and I first began to, I, I began to gradually become aware that there was a, a major problem with um, HIV AIDS um, in, um, in, 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 in Botswana, the first person who drew my attention to it was actually a Ugandan, a Ugandan neighbor, 
because someone died and I couldn't figure it out. So I was kind of like puzzled. And one day she said, I can see that you don't understand. Let me enlighten you. <laughs> um, it was a Ugandan. And then late, later on, I got to know many Ugandans when I was in Southern Africa. And, and we began to have a joke that uh, we used to say in Southern Africa. So, you know, Ugandans can smell HIV like 10 miles away because <laughs> they, they, they had a certain sensitivity to, they had seen this up close and, and personal. And they could tell when it was likely. And um, they had many words of advice. And so that was a source of encouragement. Of course, the recent good news that we've had from Uganda in terms of the um, drop in levels of infection has been something positive coming out of Uganda. You, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but Uganda was, was um, like, like many countries that, that, were in, that were assembled in, in the colonial time, was not historically a country. It was uh, many different people mm-hmm. were, were told, well, you're now Uganda. Mm-hmm. Is there a unified Ugandan culture? <laughs> I would say yes. I mean, you still have your different ethnic groups. Uh, Uganda has over 52 different ethnic groups. And so, yeah, I think Museveni tries to really emphasize unity. Still, you'll have your different ethnic groups, and certainly central Uganda, which is the Buganda Kingdom, is the largest and most prominent. But um, So, yeah, I think they're aiming that way. Okay. Maybe a while. I think you should ask that question like the next uh, 50 to 100 years. Yeah. Come back and ask that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll try and give you an answer. It's very gradual. <laughs> it's a work in, in progress. It's, it's Sometimes. Yeah. People <laughs> are working towards, but um, yes. it's going to take some time to get to that yeah. point. Are there any questions from the audience for any, for any or all of our panelists? Yes. I'll, I'll repeat the question for the benefit of uh, people who are watching on TV and who couldn't hear your question because the audience is not on microphone. Is it a fact that uh, AIDS started in Africa? Who would be, who'd like to take that one on? Um, Well, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure I'm actually the best person to answer that. Um, My impression is that it's it's based on fact. I'd like to respond, because this is a question that um, comes up um, a lot in discussions um, in Africa itself, where um, there's a lot of um, um, skepticism about whether or not... um, HIV originated in Africa. And, and my response to people when discussing is, I tell people, um, when they ask this question, I say, you know, imagine that you're in a location and there is a rocket that's about to fall on you and destroy where you are. Now, you can have a lengthy discussion about where the rocket is coming from, or you can get out of the way. So... This is an important scientific question. It, de- it deserves to be investigated, and hopefully we'll have more light shed on this in the future. In the meantime, everybody needs to get out of the way. Okay. Your second question, please. Okay. How bad is it? How much impact do we expect AIDS to have on the population of Africa over the next 50 years? Anyone feel qualified to answer that question? I can only speak towards Uganda. Uh, Uganda has a population of about 25 million people and an orphan population of 2.4 million orphans. Of the 2.4 million orphans, a little over a million are due to the HIV virus. In sub-Saharan Africa, there is an orphan population of about 14, almost 15 million children who have lost parents to AIDS. Uh, Uganda, I think in the year 2010, expects to have an orphan population of 3.5 million. Just one more interesting kind of fact mm-hmm. is that in, in Uganda, with a population of 25 million, 
What's mostly being impacted is the age from 18 to 42. Mm -hmm. The average life expectancy five years ago was, or four years ago, is about 37. Right now it's about 42. And uh, over half of that population of 25 million uh, are under the age of 15. So it's the leadership of tomorrow that's really been being affected, mm-hmm. impacted. Well, I was going to add um, in response to, you, to the earlier, um, your earlier question um, to say that um, uh, no one looking at the um, trends overall expects, you know, the entire population of Africa to be wiped out by um, HIV AIDS. Certainly life expectancy has dropped in many places because of um, um, HIV AIDS. I, I think the main concern in many places is the orphan population. If you have a significant proportion of, the, uh, of a national population that's growing up without parents, without adult supervision, what does that mean? Mm. You know, this is a theme that's been explored in literature. What happens when you leave children to their own devices? Mm. So that, that's the main fear. The woman with the white sweater. Okay, it's a question. It's a question about the uh, the levels of these different drugs, the ARVs, and uh, if there are different levels of aggressiveness, mm-hmm. would it make sense to start with the most aggressive? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, that's that's what everyone does. Um, initially, we had single drug therapy, and it was a, a single category of drug. So, really, what I meant by that statement was that we have three different. The backbone three are the three different categories of drugs, meaning they have different mechanisms of action. Um, But as far as being aggressive with therapy, absolutely, uh, you're aggressive from the the start. And it's uh, you use combination therapy, and that's the highly active antiretroviral therapy or heart therapy. We use that in uh, in all patients, children and adults now. So uh, absolutely, the most aggressive therapy is, is where we start. And um, uh, what I meant again by the three different uh, drug categories was just their mechanism of action. How did AIDS come to be associated with the gay culture in the United States is the question. Well, it appears that they have very high-risk sexual activities and that those high-risk activities uh, perpetuate the transmission of the virus. Multiple partners and and other issues uh, related uh, to their activities. Oh, how it jumped continents. Uh, Well, it's... You know, that's the epidemiology of infections. Uh, how do any infections jump continents? It's uh, a person-to-person transmission. That's it. It doesn't. It's AIDS is not transmitted in the air, so it, it does require person-to-person contact. Um, so it's contact with another infected individual. Um, I'll follow up on that question, uh, Moradewan Adijan Moby. Um, has there ever been, or is there seen to be a connection between? Uh, between homosexuality and AIDS in Africa as there has been in the United States? No, I, I don't think so, because um, homosexuality, homosexuality in Africa often tends, it's not always, but often tends to be a hidden practice. And, so, um, um, and HIV is sufficiently widespread in a number of places that, it, you know, to make that connection with homosexuals in particular seems kind of like out of the way. People are more likely to say it's all those foreigners that have HIV, or it's because there's a lot of tourism, or there are a lot of foreign prostitutes. You know, um, it's never us. It's always them kind of thing, okay. uh, whoever the them is. Okay, the question is, how do orphans try out for Spirit of Uganda? And then also, how familiar are you with Christian Life Ministries? 
I'm not really familiar with Christian Life Ministries. I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with their work. And how they try out, um, actually, it's not it's not really a tryout per uh, situ. It sort of is a tryout situation, but it's not. There are young people that are under our support system and um, enjoy dancing. Uh, really, Spirit of Uganda is just one of our programs. We have two other programs, a U.S. scholarship program, and we're in the midst of developing a secondary school, which will care for about three to 400 children, orphans and vulnerable children. And really, our dance uh, company will probably come from that school. So these are children based in the community that we know of that are in need and uh, are in need of support. The question is, um, do you see AIDS playing a role in hindering development in Africa? Or perhaps it's a good question for Mara Dewin. Well, clearly it is going to play um, a major role in hindering um, uh, development. One of the paradoxes... Um, going back to some of our earlier conversation, is a lot of the people who are affected are, in fact, educated people. And these are poor countries that have invested a lot of money to train someone to send them to college, and then the person dies. Um, This is a great loss. It's it's a loss anywhere, but it's a loss in particular in places where um, you don't have the resources to perpetuate that kind of training. So there there are countries... I I remember reading an article about um, a situation in Zambia where... um, the, uh, an official in government said, we have to train two people for every job because one of them is going to die. So um, in terms of the um, investment that's been made previously and in the future in, in manpower, in, in human beings, um, and seeing all of that go to waste as people die. And then, of course, the sheer cost of trying to care for uh, those who are infected and how that then affects other. You know, when um, parents die, then kids stop going to school. A relative dies. Um, so it, it's definitely going to slow down things a lot. Question is, um, in Southern Africa, do they promote prevention or, or a cure? Do you want to say something first and then I'll say something? I was just going to say, you know, that's uh, what uh, Uganda promotes is, has been a lot of their success is through abstinence. So there are different philosophies on what works and what doesn't work. So... This is a source of a a major debate, and I think um, medical anthropologists and others are going to be looking into this for a long while to try and figure out um, the the cause of uh, a certain drop, which certainly we have seen um, in Uganda, um, compared to other places. It's not as straightforward as it would seem, um, because going um, if I speak about my experience, in Botswana in the mid-1990s, the government of Botswana did everything right. They had huge billboards saying, you know, HIV kills, wear a condom. They had free condom dispensing machines in every male bathroom, every male restroom at the University of Botswana. Um, They um, spoke about um, abstinence, but they gave out a ton of education. In the high schools, any teenage boy who said, um, I want to go see uh, a doctor or a nurse um, in order to receive uh, protection for HIV, the, the in the, in the middle of any class, the teacher had to release him. He had to be free to go to a hospital and, and ask for condoms if that's what he wanted. And the rate ballooned to 38 to 40% of the population. So clearly something was amiss. And that's why I said earlier on, human behavior is just very difficult to manage. So, why certain things seem to have worked in Uganda for a while is still, you know, is still a subject of debate. Um, but it's not clear that just the education by itself 
works. It seems that you need something more. The question is, um, any recommendations for us collectively as voters, stockholders, and so on, for what we might want to do about this? Well, let's, let's use this as an excuse for final thoughts, quick final thoughts from everyone. Let's start with uh, Maura Dewan. <laughs> I was hoping I'd be the last person and I'd have more time to, um, uh, to, to think about it. Um, uh, I, I think, obviously, in the United States, um, HIV AIDS is, is, is at a different point now. But there, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from looking at... Um, not just what's happening with that virus um, elsewhere in the world, but also the beginning stages of, mm. of infection in the United States. You remember all the paranoia that there was? Mm. Um, and this could happen with any other disease in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so whether or not we find a cure, hopefully soon, to HIV-AIDS, um, there, there, I think, will always be viruses, and there will always be mysterious infections. And we need to learn about how to manage these uh, mysterious infections, learn from the experience of HIV-AIDS, um, what works, what doesn't, and how to confront um, uh, um, something that seems so difficult to manage. Jean, either answer the question or final thoughts from you. <laughs> yeah, I, it's difficult to say exactly um, how, as a voter or a stockholder, that you would want to impact, but obviously you want to impact in any positive way you can. And I think that uh, it may be more of a social um, drive uh, for impact. Uh, Obviously, being open, being direct, being candid about the infection in a population, I think, is very important. Trying to steer clear from racism, I think, is very important. Um, We're all in this. And, um, I mean, depending upon the situation, uh, I'm sure I could come up with an example of how a voter or a stockholder could uh, impact positively. But I just think that it's it's clearly important. And I think perhaps Uganda is an example from this perspective of being candid and direct and open about talking about the disease and the infection and uh, means of prevention. And Alexis? Yeah, I would just say, you know, it's 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 the value of education. It's such a powerful weapon, and uh, you know, people look at shock and awe of the numbers of uh, how AIDS has impacted the continent of Africa. But it's about education. I mean, when you look at America, tobacco smoking, drugs, alcohol, the disease of all those things, and how we can change our own world. I said, to, to the degree that we can avoid complacency. You know, well, what can I do? It's so big. It's so huge. But really, what Empower African Children is about and what the spirit of Uganda is about is we believe that anything is possible. And these children that perform, wow, they're a great testimony, testimony to me every day of hope. I can do it if you believe in me. And I think it's taking one person at a time. Spirit of Uganda is at the Mandavi Center on Friday night. Thanks to our guests, Alexis Halfley of Empower African Children and in turn Spirit of Uganda. And from UC Davis, Dr. Maura Dewan Adijan Mobi and Dr. Jean Wiedemann. Thank you. Thank them on behalf of all of us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.